welcome to Talk is Jericho. It is the pot of thunder and rock and roll. And what a day. It's Friday. And today on the show, in my quest to have every member of KISS on this podcast, past, present, maybe even the future, I got current KISS drummer Eric Singer here this week today. He's the longest running KISS drummer in the history of the band. He's been with them off and on for the last 20 years. Before he was in KISS, he played with everybody. Journeyman drummer who played with Black Sabbath, Tony Aomi obviously as well, lead of Ford, Badlands. He's got stories on top of rock and roll stories. You'll hear all about how he found out he was going to be in KISS, how the whole 96 unplugged and original KISS lineup reunion really went down, what those signature KISS platform boots actually cost, what his relationship was like with late Eric Carr, KISS's former drummer that Eric Singer replaced, uh, and when and if he ever thinks KISS will call it quits, or if he believes what Paul Stanley does, that KISS will ultimately continue forever with new guys under the makeup talking to eric singer uh probably my favorite kiss drummer definitely was in my favorite kiss lineup it's almost sacrilegious to some people but as you know as i've told bruce kulik before when he was on the show and paul when he was on the show and gene simmons when he was on the show eric singer the revenge era lineup eric is here today with kiss and speaking of kiss the Kiss Freedom to Rock Summer Tour just kicked off July 4th in Tucson, Arizona. Paul told me it was 108 degrees. Yeah, I'd like to be wearing that grease paint. The makeup running down my face. Yeah, right. They're going all summer, people, and they're doing it patriotic. Smoke, explosions, fire, flying demons, flying star child, uh, the cat man going up on the riser. 40 cities through July and August. It's a hell of a tour. It closes out September 10th in Huntington, West Virginia. Check out kissonline.com for all the dates to get tickets. Kiss on tour. What's better than a Kiss show? I mean, come on. What's better than having Eric Singer here and talk as Jericho? Well, I'll tell you what's uh, almost as good. Having my own network. Very, very excited. The Jericho Network debuted this week, Thursday, July 7th. Saw the flagship show, Keeping It 100 with Conan, dropped its debut episode yesterday via Podcast One. you got to check it out. Just go to podcastone.com right here where you're listening, or head to iTunes right here if you're listening there. Hit the subscribe button for Conan. You're going to be entertained. He's controversial. He's very politically incorrect. He's very funny. Lots of pop culture references. I am taking the whole concept of what I do on Talk is Jericho and bringing it into my own network. Uh, that's uh, something I've been working on with Norm Pattis, the uh, the boss here at Podcast One, the head honcho, for months and months and months now. I want to take the diversity, uh, the versatility of what you guys hear on Talk is Jericho, all the different types of guests, all the different types of, ho- of uh, topics that we discuss, and I want to do that with the hosts that I bring aboard for the Jericho Network. If you like me, and you like my shows, trust me, who I'm bringing aboard to be on the Jericho Network. Starting off with Conan, who uh, debuted yesterday. I want you to subscribe to it and check it out uh, Keeping It 100 with Conan. I am not going to steer you wrong. i got a fine collection of, of hosts that are going to be having their own shows. Most of them have been on Talk as Jericho in the past. People that I thought were very interesting. People that I thought were very funny, uh, very informative. There will be wrestling. Yes, there will be music shows. 
There'll be paranormal shows. There'll be pop culture shows. That's what I'm bringing to you on the Jericho Network via Podcast One. So go subscribe to the first show on the Jericho Network, the uh, the debut show, the flagship show. Keep it at 100 with Conan. Go subscribe now. And after you do that, do yourself another favor. Pick up The Resurrection of Jake the Snake on DVD or on Blu-ray. Diamond Dallas Page and his crew put 20 bonus features on the collector's edition of The Resurrection of Jake the Snake documentary, including a commentary track narrated by Dallas himself and Jake as well, and director Steve Yu. It's one of the best documentaries I've ever seen. Uh, I'm, I'm in it as well. I'm amazing at it, of course. But you guys know how much I love documentaries, how many I've seen, because uh, I tell you about them on this show. I'm telling you right now, Jake's documentary, such an incredible story. Not a wrestling exclusive documentary you don't have to be a wrestling fan to be sucked into this story and that's what it is it's jake's story uh he was on the edge man. he was at the end of his rope uh ready to die basically and his old friend diamond dallas page uh, and his crew saved jake from uh, from passing away and I'm, I'm telling you he was at the end of his rope you'll see honestly jake was in a really bad place when ddp came in brought him to atlanta and literally saved his life ddp and director steve you filmed jake's three-year journey to turn his life around, to kick drugs, and to reunite with his family and reclaim his career. And they show you the whole ride. You'll be mad. You'll be laughing. You'll be crying. And in the end, you'll be cheering for Jake. It's an emotional roller coaster, but one with a very happy ending. Jake's doing great now, thanks to Diamond Dallas Page. And you can watch the whole story unfold in front of your eyes in the absolutely riveting documentary, uh, The Resurrection of Jake the Snake, by the Collector's Edition now. Over 20 bonus features on the DVD and the Blu-ray. Go to DDP Yoga dot com slash Jericho and then use my promo code Y2J and you'll get 10% off anything you buy for a limited time. You got to see this documentary. You're going to be inspired and then you're going to be inspired to give DDP Yoga and the DDP Yoga Now app a try yourself. It can help you out of some jams. I'm telling you right now, take advantage of the special deal at ddpyoga.com slash Jericho. That's ddpyoga.com slash Jericho. Check out the resurrection of Jake the Snake. Be inspired and go do DDP Yoga yourself. Get in the best shape of your life mentally and physically go do it now ddpyoga.com slash jericho how are we doing so far are y'all having a good time we are just getting started okay so we're in a um a fancy pants studio to do this interview with, with eric sanger which is funny because a lot of times I just have my little portable rig. We're actually in a studio. It's like we're recording like we could record an album in here. It's like yeah, a studio. Th- this is a real, for real voiceover studio. Yeah. I've actually done stuff here before. Well, you said that uh, we're the, the dude, one of your dudes from Alice Cooper used to own this yeah, place? Yeah, Chuck Garrick used to own this, he and his wife. And actually, we did demos in here with Alice before. In this studio? In this studio a long time ago, yeah. How, how long did you play with Alice for? On and off, well... I did 13 tours with Alice wow. total. So I don't know if I have the the longevity record anymore. It might be Chuck. Chuck mm-hmm. Garrick might be the guy that's been the longest running uh, with Alice. But for the longest time, I probably had played with him longer than anybody, even maybe more than the, anybody from the original band back in the early 70s. Because well, Alice always had the, the rotating lineup, but there were always killers in his band. Like yeah. Everybody in the band was great. Well, the original band was called... See, a lot of people don't know this. The original... Or they confuse it. The original band was... Alice Cooper was the name of the band, just like... Uh, just like Kiss is the name of Kiss. Right. Um, Leonard Skinner, like which one's Leonard? Yeah, right? exactly, yeah. which one was Alice, and there right. really was no Alice. He was Vince at that time. Oh, really? Yeah, Vince Fernier, but uh, 
everybody just called him Alice because they said, well, there's this androgynous guy that kind of looks like a girl, but he's, you know, he's a guy, but he dresses like a woman and he has a woman's name. And it's just kind of something that stuck to him. And when the band kind of split up, Alice went to, he went and legally changed his name to Alice Cooper. And everybody calls him Alice except for his mom. His mom calls him Vince, <laughs> but everybody calls him Alice. Even his wife really? calls him Alice. Yeah, well, that's his name now. Yeah, yeah, well, that's his. That is his name legally. He changed it. Right. That's what guys like that's the Ultimate Warrior did. He legally changed his name to Warrior. So even though WWE owned the name Ultimate Warrior, they couldn't change to stop him from just being called Warrior. Of course not. Right. And that, that's exactly what Alice and Shep, his manager, did. Mm-hmm. Sim- similar scenario, something like that. Um, and it was actually a brilliant move to do. For Alice, obviously, because then he did Welcome to My Nightmare, and the rest is history. He, you know, he kept doing what he was doing, which was a theatrical, visionary type thing. And I get from what Alice told me, the other guys really wanted to do more focus on music. And you know, sometimes people get to a point, which I think probably a similar thing has happened to Kiss through the years, where people think more of the focus is on the show and the makeup as opposed to the music and songs. But if you're having success because of this total package. You, you can't walk away from that, throw it away. And I, so that's why, you know, why Kiss was smart to go back into the makeup because that's really what people associate with the band and want to see. Mm-hmm. Um, even though a lot of people say, well, I'm, I'm into it only for the music. Well, yeah, I mean, that's why all of us started playing music because we like music. But creating some kind of uh, way of presenting your music is, I think, a smart thing. And that's kind of what Alice did and that's what Kiss did. And uh, it's obviously worked out. It's interesting, though, for you because you've played in both Alice and Kiss, probably the two biggest as far as uh, production-type bands from from that era, I guess you would say. Yeah, absolutely. Shock rock or whatever the word would be. Well, Alice probably kind of invented more of the shock rock thing. I mean, there was people, you know, the mad world of Arthur Brown. He kind of wore makeup and stuff like that. He had his head, head on fire, and he did crazy stuff back in the 60s. It's not who does it first, it's who does it best mm-hmm. and who gets known for it. And when, when you were doing the gigs with, with Alice, you mentioned the 13 tours, like, would he do the same gags every tour, like his big moments of obviously the guillotine and all that? Was it the same or would um, he change the stunts? Not every time. There was a time where Alice wasn't doing that. I don't know if it was because he was co- conflicted with his own personal religious views mm-hmm. or whatever. When he became a Christian, you mean? Yeah, but Alice is, yeah. And, and it's, you know, but Alice has learned to, you know, just like we say in government, separation of church and state, mm-hmm. I think Alice has learned to do the same thing with Alice Cooper. He looks at Alice Cooper as a separate entity. It's like it's a person I p- portray and play on stage, I turn into. But otherwise, when he's off stage, he's a regular guy. Mm-hmm. Some of the, I remember when I first started playing with him, that was 1990 on the Trash Tour. So when I joined the band, he had a huge hit with Poison, album was platinum album so i joined him at a great time and uh i remember it was, it's funny we were, i'm sitting here talking to, with you about it because a lot of wrestlers would come to our show i remember jake the snake coming to the show and hanging out with us at our dress room in atlanta because atlanta was a big big hotbed yeah big hotbed well actually alice actually seconded jake the snake to the ring at one of the wrestlemanias too with exactly. the snake and everything so yeah. that's why he came there a lot of you know it, there's always been a relationship between rock and roll yeah. and wrestlers i remember Another funny incident when uh, The Undertaker came to one of our KISS shows in 92 on the Revenge Tour. And Derek Sherinian, you know Derek, yeah. Derek was playing keyboards off stage with us at that time. Because Derek and I worked together with Alice. And oh, I actually really? got him the KISS. Yeah, we played together with Alice in 90 and 91 for the Trash and Hey Stupid tours. And then I joined KISS and then we needed a keyboard player so I got Derek the gig um, playing with KISS. And I remember a lot of wrestlers would come to the gig and 
I remember the Undertaker was there, and Derek saw him and brought him over, you know, into his keyboard pit on the side of the stage. And usually the rule was no one was allowed, like on stage, unless you it was somebody's wife or significant other, whatever, or family or something like that. But generally, because of pyro and liability issues, mm-hmm. you don't usually want people on the sides or backstage because they could get hurt, obviously. So, anyways, I guess Gene walked over during the show and he goes, "Who's that?" And Derek goes, it's The Undertaker. He's famous. Gene goes, oh, okay. And he went back on stage and started playing. <laughs> and I remember we took a bunch of pictures after the show with him. Um, but well, we were all wrestling fans, you know. Mm. Derek and I, I mean, anybody, I mean, at my age, anybody that grew up in the 70s, you definitely had to be influenced by wrestlers, you know, and wrestling. And you grew up in Cleveland, right? Yeah, I grew up in Cleveland. So the, a lot of the wrestlers used to, they used to, I never went to any of the events, but they used to play the Akron Armory. Mm-hmm. It was a, fa- a lot of a lot of those wrestlers in the early formative years worked. You know, it's like you t- hear b- bands talk about playing a Chitlin circuit. Yeah, little clubs in the South. Well, with the wrestlers, it was they played these armories, armories veterans the, halls. Yeah, all over the country. But um, I also wrestled in junior high for like three years. So you did. Yeah, I was a wrestler. So I I grew up as a wrestler, and. Um, Always liked it, and uh, I started playing in my dad's band when I was like 14 years old. So I was in about ninth grade. So a lot of times on the weekends, instead of going to hang out with my friends, punking on the corner, I'd have to be getting, you know, waiting to go and play these country club gigs and stuff. My dad was a society band leader. Was it like a big band or something? Well, he or? did that too, but he was more like so- what they call society what is music, that? which means society music means playing for rich people, mm. like high society. Um, Originally, my dad used to be a band leader on the SS United States and SS America, which were the big ocean liners that would go from New York over to London, then to Paris and back, cross-Atlantic uh, trips. And he did that in the early, 50, uh, early 60s when we were little kids. And uh, so he worked for this society band leader out of New York named Meyer Davis, who's very famous. He basically is the guy that would play for dignitaries. You know, we, like when I was a kid, we'd play for, you know, when the, if the president came to town... We would play for, like, I mean, I remember playing for first Bush, Reagan, President Ford, all really? those people. Jimmy Carter, yeah, when I was a kid in the 70s. And so what kind of stuff would we be playing? Like, You'd be playing, like, Cole Porter. You know, Glenn the, Miller the American, stuff. Yeah, the American Song. Songbook, basically, you call it. Um, it's all the standards of that wow. era and genre. So my formative years were more not really, even though I always listened to rock and hard stuff since I was a little kid and influenced by my older brother and older sister, aunts and uncles and their music from the time I was a little kid. And that's what I always wanted to do. But my, because my dad was a band leader, basically once I started playing drums at 10 and by the time I was pl- could play pretty decent at 14, my dad's like, okay, well, you're going to play drums in my band. I was like, I don't want to do this. Like, well, you're doing it. You know? <laughs> there was no, there was yeah. no debate. There was no debate. It's like going outside to cut the lawn or something. It's like you're you, doing it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There was no debate. But in hindsight, I remember I used to sometimes be very like frustrated. But the guys in the band used to say, oh, you're going to thank your dad one day. You, you know, you, you're too young to appreciate or understand this, but. And and I do, and I abs- they were one hundred percent right, and I do appreciate it because it probably not only gave me a great foundation, um, exposed me to a lot of great music, um, a lot of great experiences, but it probably kept me out of trouble because mm-hmm. I hung around with some quite a cast of characters. Well, it's like you said, and plus during those teenage years keeps you off the streets, and plus probably made you a better drummer as well, learning oh, yeah. that craft first, right? Yeah, of course. Playing, I mean, the bottom line is playing music with professionals in an organized fashion, regardless of what type of music it is, that in itself creates like foundation and fundamentals that you need. And you can take that then and apply that musicality, if you will, to whatever genre of music you decide to go into. Because mm-hmm. some of the basic um, 
foundation needs to be there no matter what you play. Right. Well, it's like the Van Halens used to do that, too. They used to play with their dad's yeah. big band as well, Exactly. Right? Same thing. Exactly. And evidently, Steven Tyler did it. He oh. played drums originally. Yeah. And he played in his dad's band when he was younger. And I think Steve Perry originally was a drummer from Journey. He, I, I think he did the same thing. A lot of guys, you don't really know what they did in their formative years unless mm -hmm. they tell you. You know, right, right, right. People don't know their their background. They, you know, a lot of kids I grew up with back in Cleveland. They remember. They knew my dad was a band leader, or they remember. I might have played their brothers or one of their family members' wedding or something mm -hmm. when I was a kid. So, who were your favorite rock drummers at that time? Or were you into more like like uh, like jazz type drummers? Like those, well, I like liked both because my dad Krupa used to types. take me to go see Buddy Rich. Louis Belson, you know, Stan Kenton, uh, Count Basie, those kind of bands a lot. So I got exposed to big band music and drumming specifically. And I really, even to this day, I always loved that stuff and always ad admired it. But I, I mean, I saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan like everybody else in 64. And I remember seeing, you know, like Dave Clark 5 on Ed Sullivan. I remember the drummer Dave Clark had mm -hmm. a red Sparkle Rogers kit. You know, those certain little moments really... Yeah, you don't forget that. They really stick with you. But I remember about 68, 69, um, you know, I got... I remember when I first heard, like, Led Zeppelin. Those were the turning points. Hearing, like, Black Sabbath, Zeppelin, Deep Purple. I call those the big three. Right. I mean, people call about, like, having the big four. They always refer to that now in modern terms of, like, these thrash or heavy bands. Metallica, Megadeth, yeah, that, that kind of stuff, yeah. Which I always found that weird. They would say the big four, and I was like, how come nobody puts Pantera in there? To me, Pantera... I think they were the next generation. They yeah, came but, out in the 90s, oh, maybe. okay, because I always thought of Pantera being, like, other than Metallica, they were bigger than all of them. Oh, absolutely. Bands. But they I think were absolutely the, bigger. The big, Wouldn't you say? Oh, yeah, absolutely. But the big four was based on the thrash movement that started in about '84 okay. or so. And okay. Pantera is more like '90, '91. Okay, something okay, like that's that. what so it is. That's why, yeah. I always thought, you know, I, I'm not really versed in that genre, and it's not. I mean, I'll be honest with you, I'm not a big fan of that genre mm -hmm. personally. Um, so I always just wondered whenever I heard people talking, I thought, well, do they not include Pantera just because? They don't exist anymore, or what's yeah, the reason? But now you, that's it makes why. sense what you're saying. Different generation, basically. Because yeah. my memory of Pantera was they were probably, other than Metallica, they were the biggest of that of their genre. Well, and very influential at the time. Even when you talk about like the Revenge record, I mean, there's a lot of heaviness in there. There's probably a little bit of Pantera seeped in there. Are you talking about like Unholy or something like that? It's got a real Pantera vibe yeah, to it. Yeah, And for me, you know, nothing against any of the other bands, but Dimebag was clearly the best guitar player of I mean, you could take anybody out of the big four. I'm yeah. But for me, Dimebag was clearly on a different level any of those guitar players. Well, and also, too, combined with his brother, the groove that those two have yeah. is what makes it so special. It is a Van Halen brother connection. Yeah, you're right. They Nothing have, like two brothers, you know, Yeah, they have this like telepathy thing right. that's going on between them, a connection. They know what each other's doing instinctively. Yes. And, um, but, I mean, Dimebag was legitimately, a you know, a real great guitar player. Absolutely. You know, a lot of times people want to give accolades to musicians just because the band's big there. Therefore, they think anyone that played in the band is automatically great. And I don't think that's necessarily true of all bands. Um, the sum is usually greater than the parts mm -hmm. in most cases. But you do have 
some bands like a Van Halen where you take Eddie Van Halen out of it and he's still amazing. Yes. Alex is a killer drummer. I mean, and I think the same thing with Pantera. Those guys, you're right, that's a good analogy that they're kind of like the Van Halen Absolutely. brothers in that Absolutely. way. Absolutely. But you mentioned that you're talking about the big three of, of Deep Purple and, and Zeppelin and Sabbath. You actually played in Sabbath too, which yeah. blows my mind because all these bands, I'm sure you were a Kiss fan when you were a kid. Absolutely. Alice fan when you were a kid. All, all the bands Sabbath I played with. <laughs> every band I played with, I was a fan of. I have to say, I mean, I got to play with Brian May, Gary Moore, right. playing with those guys. I mean, I remember buying, I remember before I moved to L.A. blasting, I had these really killer speakers. And I, I, uh, I remember used to crank uh, Quarters of Power, Gary Moore album, yeah. and just thought he was so great. And I remember when I first, we, when, we, when I first started working with Tony Iommi, which became the, the Black Sabbath album Seventh Star, mm -hmm. um, Jeff Glicksman was the producer. Jeff had produced, obviously, mostly famous for Kansas. He had produced all the big Kansas records. But he did Gary Moore, Quarters of Power, and Victims of the Future. And I remember always talking to him then when I first met him, which was in 85. I was like, man, I think Gary Moore is so great. If I, you know, if there's ever an opportunity for me to get to play with him, I really want to play with that guy or jam with him sometime. And fast forward like two years later, and I was in Gary's band. So, <laughs> um, so Unbelievable, right? Yeah, it's, it's very... All the experiences that I look back on, to me it's still kind of surreal because I still remember being that little kid going to concerts and being in the front row, like, leaning on the stage like this. And, you know, I always tell people the story. Like, I, I, always t I told Gene and Paul when I first met them that I went to see Kiss. First time I saw them was in uh, 74. They were in April 74 because they were opening for the New York Dolls in Cleveland at the Allen Theater. <laughs> and um, I remember I got kicked out of the show because they had these little opera booths on the sides of the theater. And I remember pre the week before that, I had gone to see Susie Quattro. And my buddy, it's funny, he's a Kiss connection. My buddy, Kevin Valentine, who played on on uh, some Kiss stuff. Psycho um, Circus kind of yeah, thing, Psycho maybe. Circus, yeah, Psycho Circus. And some other stuff. You know, demos. Kevin and I went to the same high school together. Really? We went to Euclid High School in, on the east side of Cleveland. He was a couple years older. And Kevin was always like one of the hotshot drummers in town. He's one of the first ones that got in a band that got a record deal. And they opened for Kiss, a band called Breathless. Mm. And they opened for Kiss in 78. <laughs> so Kevin kind of had already made it, you know, to us at a young age. You know, I was still in high school and he was already out touring opening for Kiss. So, um, and then <laughs> I remember so going to the concert. Um, this is when we were still in high school. I was about, well, I was 15. And I remember seeing him climbing up. As soon as the lights would go, guys would scale the wall and climb up into those little balcony things. So I thought, when Kiss is here next week, I'm going to do that. I'm going up in that thing. So as soon as the lights went down, boom, I scaled the wall. And then I moved over to the middle when there was three on each side. So I'm up there the whole time. And back then, they didn't really have security. They had, like, little women that would take... You know, they'd take you to your tickets. seat. Yeah, yeah, right. Ushers. And as soon as the lights would go out, we'd go run right down the aisles and go to the front <laughs> of the stage anyways. Yeah. Now you can't do that. Right. Well, maybe in some places, but for the most part, you know, they have these big lunkheads that yeah, want to beat people you. up for, you know, we always tell them, uh, you know, they always get a little aggressive sometimes and, you know, we always tell people, hey, the problem is, you know, you're hiring guys that are getting 10 bucks an hour, basically. Right. You know, you're not hiring rocket scientists. No yeah. offense, because a lot of security guys are great and really helpful, but there's always, you get one or two bad ones at a venue that want to be macho and yeah. exercise their little bit of authority they have occasionally and kind of get aggressive with some fans occasionally. But in those days, that was never an issue because fans didn't go do that. You know, we yeah. didn't, you didn't run on stage and do that stuff. So I, I go up there in the second balcony. So when they get to Firehouse, of course, they have those, you know, the sirens, the red sirens go off and they, they 
obviously told the spotlight guys to just have the lights go all crazy all over the venue when right. So <laughs> the the spotlight shined on me up in the balcony. So I turned around like this to the crowd and I start going like this. So then of course waving your hands in the air. Yeah, like hey, you know everybody sees me. So right away some ushers came over with the flashlights telling me to come down from there. I'm like I'm like no. So I ducked down and I remember there's a piece of a curtain. I kind of tore it back and I watched the rest of the show peeking through the bars of this little balcony. And then as soon as they it's the, as soon as they were done. They're right away, you know, waiting for me to get get down from there. So I climbed down, and I was with my friend, and I remember I had drove, I think I had ridden with him. Somebody had given us a ride, and he was pretty buzzed, and uh, so we were trying to run away from the security guards to get away. I got away, but he got caught, and since he was the our ride, I had to leave, so I got thrown out, and I never <laughs> saw the New York Dolls. Oh, okay. But you yeah. saw Kiss, though, right? Saw, well, that's now, isn't that really amazing, though, that Kiss was able to use, kind of, it sounds like they're getting allowed to use the full production opening yeah. for for the dolls. Well, yeah, like, they they had the drum riser going up and breathing fire. But that's amazing oh, for an opening act oh, to yeah. be allowed they, to do they, that. They did that right out of the gate. I mean, they played, the first time they played Cleveland was about a month earlier. So when I saw Kiss that first time, they'd only been on tour maybe... Uh, four to six weeks in the very beginning. This mm. was the embryonic beginning of their career. Right. Because um, when I told Gene the time I saw him, he goes, yeah, we'd only been on tour maybe a month. Mm. Now, I remember they played earlier, about a month earlier, opening for Rory Gallagher, which is a really weird bill. Mm. Their first tour, they opened for Rory Gallagher, the Irish blues yeah, guitarist. Yeah, like folk guitarist or some blues, right? Well, electric, but, you know, but okay, blues yeah. bass, you know, kind of like Roy Buchanan, that kind of genre. And, and a great player. And I remember they played Cleveland, the Agora, but I was you had to be 18 to get into clubs then. So it's very funny because the guy that I went to school with, his dad, Hank Lacanti, owned Henry Lacanti, he owned the Cleveland Agoras, all the Agoras, his father. And he used to work, and he was like in a... In a PE or physical education, he was like the swimming. He was like a swim or swim coach. They always had seniors, yeah. or the older guys as supervisors over the younger kids. So I remember he was. And we used to talk about music all the time because I was like music, like fanatic and geek, whatever you want to call it. And he, so I'd always ask him about shows because he worked at the box office. So he saw all these great bands, and I remember I asked him if he told me he would take some pictures. He took pictures of. Uh, the show which he gave me and then I lost him and he found them and gave me copies of them which I gave to Gene he only had three pictures he had taken that oh, he okay. took at that show but when he told me when they opened when they opened up for Rory Gallagher they had the levitating drum riser and all the smoke and Gene breathing fire and all that and they set off all the fire alarms and they, they had to everybody had to go outside <laughs> and, to, and they had to open all the doors to let the smoke out before Rory Gallagher played <laughs> so crazy, they were right? doing yeah. that from the get go even as an opening act and I remember some of my friends went to the show. A lot of the girls had fake IDs in high school, so they could get into any show. Yeah. They'd always let girls in, as we know, but not guys. Right. So, which is understandable now. When you're a kid, you're kind of like, hey, how come we can't get in? <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Were, were you uh, a Peter Chris fan? Yeah, I was a fan of... I, I was more of a Kiss fan mm -hmm. in general as a band, more so than... And my favorites were... I mean, I, I, my favorites were really Ace and Paul. Because I love guitar, I'm always a most of the music I gravitate towards or that I've been influenced by is always guitar based. Okay. Like I was a big Michael Schenker fan, Blackmore, you know, Uli Roth, all those great guitar players of the '70s. When I look back, all the music I liked, it's all based on great guitar playing, right? And okay. great riffing. Yeah. So it was, I was probably more influenced by guitars than I am drums per se. But I, to me, Kiss was one of those bands like a cheap trick where the sum is greater than the parts. Individually, yeah, they're talented, but together they're great. Mm -hmm. And that's to me what 
what the original Kiss to me was a great band together. Maybe you take the guys out of there, they're not going to work in a, in a lot of other situations, but that chemistry between them was undeniable. No doubt well, about it's it. interesting that you say that because, you know, you're talking about Black Sabbath, the original four members, and when you were in Sabbath, it's just Tony's the only guy. Yeah. How was that being in Sabbath in the 80s when, as hard as it seems, Sabbath was not cool at that point Ooh. in time? But, hey, you know, it was weird. I was playing with Lita Ford at the time. Mm -hmm. That's how I ended up getting involved working with Tony because he was engaged to Lita. Oh, that's right, yeah. forget. And... Tony had come to some Lita gigs, saw me playing and stuff, and then one day Lita called me up and said, Hey, Tony wants to know if you want to play on some demos. I'm like, oh, Yeah, of course. So, And Tony was producing some of Lita's demos. At, at the time, Lita was working on a new record, which we I remember going to the studio and doing some demos and Tony producing this stuff. I mean, it was that was the uh, you know it was, that was just such a great time and heyday that '80s period of living in LA. I mean, I'd be in the studio. I remember Cheap Trick was working on an album in one room. Tesla was doing their demos for their first album in the other room, and Motley Crue. And then I was going in and out with Lita or Tony Iommi working on demos for both of them. All in the same studio. All the same st at Cherokee, which mm -hmm. was they had because they had multiple rooms there. Right, right. And um, it was just such a great time. But I got involved playing on some demos for Tony. And then next thing you know, Tony said he wanted me to play on his record, which was supposed to be a solo album, and ended up becoming a Black Sabbath album. I mean, originally he said, I'm going to have different singers. He was going to have Robert Plant, David Coverdale, Glenn Hughes, oh. some different guys all sing on different tracks. Gotcha. And they thought he was so great and liked it so much, they said, Glenn, why don't you just sing on the whole record? Which that, it turned into, instead of being multiple singers, it ended up being just Glenn singing everything. And then... The label and powers that be decided to put it out as a Black Sabbath album. Yeah, Black Sabbath featuring Tony. Yeah, we did try to do that. So, um, and then Glenn only did like six shows with us, and Glenn had problems, mm -hmm. you know, in, in many yeah. areas at that given time. That was just a, a dark, bad time for Glenn, and um, that's where we found Ray Gillen. Um, and so, were people coming to those shows? Like we, well, put it this way: in the beginning, they yeah, we. I remember. I mean, they weren't sold out, but we were do, we were playing like the regular big places. We played like the Meadowlands and really Cleveland Public. Oh yeah, with that lineup. Yeah, with that lineup, which was odd. I mean, that was my. I remember, and the tour was supposed to start. I remember in Chicago, and then for some reason they ended up postponing the start date. We ended up starting the first show and ended up being in Cleveland, my hometown, mm -hmm. at Cleveland Public Hall, and. Um, the opening bands were Wasp and Anthrax. Okay, wow. That was the bill. Yeah. Really what, what, kind of, what kind of a set list did you do at that point in time? Like a mix of everything? Yeah, a mix of everything. We did some stuff off the Seven Star album. Not a lot. I think we would do like maybe three or four songs off that album. And then some Aussie stuff and some Dio stuff. Yeah, we would do Dio. Like Ray really did. I mean, he was able to do all, I have to say, out of all the singers that were ever in Sabbath, it's unfortunate that more people didn't really get the chance to see or hear him and that he didn't get more time in the band to really grow and to make it his own and find his own identity. Mm -hmm. But he was able to do all the material because the Ozzy stuff is really high. Oh, yeah. It's much higher. I mean, it's absolutely. It, in all honesty, look, at everybody has their opinions, and I know sometimes people get mad when they hear it, but me, I prefer Ozzy and yeah. that version of Sabbath. I like the first six albums. I prefer that Black Sabbath, even though I think Ronnie's a great singer, and I love... Heaven and Hell and, and, and Mob Rules, you know, to me, to me, that's just a different band, in my opinion. Well, it's, and, and it makes me laugh, too, when people say maybe about how Ozzy's singing nowadays. Like, those melody lines are so high. No wonder. And, they're, and they're, look, Ozzy does not get the fair props that he deserves. Great singer. Ozzy's exactly. I agree, a thousand percent. Ozzy's a great singer. But here's the thing that's great about Ozzy. Great 
Ozzy's got pop sensibility. His melodies, even like Derek Sherinia said it to me once a long time ago. He goes, there's something about the tone of Ozzy's voice mixed with a heavy guitar that just has this perfect marriage. And, yeah. And he's right. And, and, and it's you see it when he did the Randy. Look how great the Randy Rhodes stuff mm-hmm. was. I mean, here he had this great melodic guitar playing, but heavy yeah. with Ozzy's. Ozzy has great. It's almost like very Beatlesy. Um, very Beatles-influenced stuff. He has great pop sensibility. His ideas are great. I know he doesn't write a lot of the lyrics. He would come up with maybe a concept or an idea for a song, and because Geezer wrote all the lyrics in Sabbath, and Bob Daisley wrote the yeah. lyrics for Ozzie, most of yeah. the so- oh, the majority of that solo material. But you can't try to discount Ozzy's voice and melodies because bottom line is when you hear Sabbath that's or his solo material you know aside him. from great all the great riffing and guitar playing and stuff in in all that music it's Ozzy's voice that's the to me the signature thing yes absolutely and absolutely. why do people want to i mean it's proof in the pudding i mean and no disrespect to the deal era but i toured when we they were doing heaven and hell and uh you know we were able to play smaller or you know reasonable venues they go with back with Ozzy and it's sold right. out yeah exactly so it's like it's what people want to hear and what they like and that's you know that that's fine i think i think it's all good i think the one thing i will give is a common thread that runs through all of sabbath records no matter who was the singer tony iomi is the best heavy riff writer period yeah and I don't know where the guy comes up with these riffs. I mean, I remember working with him, and I, I, he just has this plethora of material that just <laughs> comes out of him. And you think after a while, well, how many times can you write a heavy riff like that? But he somehow can keep reinventing it. It's Yes. And there's nobody... I've never heard anybody that can write riffs so prolifically like he has throughout his career. And his riffs are... They're not just heavy. They're great. Mm-hmm. They're really, really great. So that combination of his heavy riffs... You know, Geezer's lyrics and or Bob Daisy's lyrics, or, and, and whether it was Randy Rhodes, but Ozzy, somehow it works. Yeah, you know? absolutely. I'm a huge Sabbath fan, so I know I kind of seem like I'm slobbering over them. No, but, but uh, dude, but that's, it's Tony Iommi, man. Come on. Yeah, but right. to, to me, that's a and that's a big influence to me. And there again, the, the what they created with that original band that chemistry you know bill had this very unorthodox i call it almost like an avant-garde style of drumming jazzy yeah well it's avant-garde compared to way you know like ian pace was more like a buddy rich type with a lot of good snare drum and really great chops bonham had a good you know that great feel and groove and sound and he had a lot of r&b influence in his drumming too but bill sometimes didn't get as much credit as he deserved and I remember as a kid growing up, everybody would talk about the other two guys more so. And definitely, Bill was just different than those guys. Mm-hmm. He might not have had the technical ability of the other two, but his point of view was very different. And the, like he did stuff you'd hear and you'd be like, "Wow, what made? I wonder what made him play that and why." You mm-hmm. know, it's just he had a, like an abstract avant-garde approach to the music. But that's to me what made them sound different sure, than sure. those other bands and unique. Well, because the drum, the drumming definitely, um, you know, you're, you're talking about how, like, for example, like when Eric Carr came in to Kiss, it kind of changed the whole tone of the band because he was a totally different player than, than Peter Absolutely was. Absolutely different. Were you, were you a, a fan of Eric? Did you follow Kiss at that point in time? Well, I always was, a, put it this way, I always was aware and followed what Kiss did. But at the time, you know, I'm 57 years old. So when, when Kiss first came on the scene, I was, you know, 15. By the time Kiss got really big, 
in like say 76, more to like 78 that period. By that point, I was 18, 19, 20 years old. And then I started seeing all these little kids right. going ah, to kiss yeah. with their parents. Well, but, but we're talking about Eric though. So when you heard his style, did you, um, were you, were you like, cause he was a great player as far as just bringing this real heavy sound yeah. to their, which they Well, needed. he was a more technically accomplished drummer yeah. than what Peter did. You know, but Kiss in the early days was a different band than what they had grown into right. and become. They kind of, you know, there's some common threads. Gene and Paul have always been the main singers, main songwriters. So you're always going to have a. Um, it's kind of like a, like I said about Black Sabbath, where you're always going to have that Tony Iommi influence mm-hmm. over the sound, no matter who's in the band. There's always going to be something that kind of keeps it sounding like Kiss. I think that's kind of a given with Gene and Paul's influence over everything. But uh, Eric. I always thought, here's the way I look at KISS and, and the different m- musicians that have played with them. Whoever was in the band at a given time always brought something to the table that kept it still being KISS, but made it kind of morph, if you will, or change to through what the time. going on, sure. It's like, you don't get cryogenically frozen in 1976. KISS can't be 1976 KISS forever. It's just not possible. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I, I know some people emotionally stay attached to what they identify when they really loved or grew up with or influenced by a particular band or music because mm-hmm. it reminds them of a time and a place that they, it's a comfort. Adapt to, yeah, exactly. And that they relate to. But I think what Eric did, he was the right drummer at the right time for mm-hmm. Kiss at that time. All right, there are some seriously talented luchadors in AEW and not all of them speak English, which can make putting together matches a little challenging sometimes. That's why I signed up for Rosetta Stone. I'm learning Spanish, amigos, amigas. See, already learning. Haha, Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program. You don't even have to learn Spanish, though, because Rosetta Stone has 25 languages, including French, German, Korean, Arabic, and Polish, and Japanese. That's what I'm going to do next. I spent a lot of time in Japan, and I still work with a lot of Japanese wrestlers at AEW, like Takeshita. So having a better handle on the language will definitely show in the ring. Communication is key. And learning Spanish on Rosetta Stone has been so fun and easy. They've got this true accent feature that gives you feedback on how well you're pronouncing words, sort of like having a personal trainer for your accent. I'm using the app, but you can also do the lessons on desktop or laptop. I also like that I can download the lessons and do them offline, which is perfect for a plane. I can sit there on a flight and work on my Espanol. So don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started for a very limited time, Talk is Jericho listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash Jericho. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash Jericho today. That's rosettastone.com slash Jericho. Do it today. All right, Kiss drummer Eric Singer is here with me. How did you get up, uh, end up in Kiss? Well, I played on Paul's solo tour in 89. Okay, was that just a word-of-mouth thing, though? Kind of yeah, like, you got to yeah. use this guy? Well, actually, well, what happened, yeah. I think, from what I remember, Paul told me he was asking around. He was um, trying to find, some, you know, he was going to put a band together. He went asked Bob Kulik first, mm-hmm. because Bob had played on his solo in right. 78. And I think he tried to get Greg Bissonette, who had been playing with David Lee Roth, but Greg wasn't available and he said a few other people had mentioned my name. And the the management, I was in Badlands at the time, and our management was in New York. And we were there recording, and they managed uh, some couple other people as well. And one of the other guys that was going to play bass in Paul's solo tour was uh, Dennis St. James. 
he was in a band with Bob Kulik. Okay. So he had mentioned, he knew who I was, and he went into the office one day and said, hey, what's Eric doing? Because Paul Stanley needs a drummer. And he said, he said, he's done with his tracks. He's not doing anything. I was ready to go back home to L.A. We had finished, just finished, you know, all our basics. They were going to go into mixing stage. So he recommended me to Paul, and somebody from the KISS office called me up and said, hey, Paul wants to meet you, and blah, blah, blah. So... It was very ironic. The hotel I was staying in in Manhattan was literally, I mean, like, you know where we're at now. If, I was, if we went around the corner, like, to one of those stores, that's where the KISS office was. It was right around the corner. Oh, okay. So I went over there and brought Paul a couple of, I had just done the Gary Moore tour, because this was early 89. So I'd done the Gary Moore tour, and I was in a band with Jake E. Lee. So everybody knew at that, you know, Paul knew that Jake had just come out of Ozzy and was starting his own band. So... Paul saw, oh, you played with Black Sabbath, Gary Moore, blah, 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 blah. And I gave him a couple of Black Sabbath records I'd played on. So sometimes your resume does sure, yeah. work. But word of mouth, too. Word yeah. of mouth, too. Word this guy's a good guy, easy to work with. Well, Paul said he'd asked some people around, and a couple. he said my name came up a few times and stuff. So he hadn't heard me play or see me, but he just went by, you know, I gave him some CDs. He went by word of mouth. So that night, uh, was, we were we were recording at the record plant. I was ready to go home the next day. I was flying back to L.A. The other guys were going to stay and do overdubbing and start mixing. So um, the China Club in New York was a place where a lot of bands used to go and hang out and jam, a lot of guys. So I guess Paul, and Paul used to go there and jam a lot. And Jason Flom from Atlantic, who mm-hmm. was our A&R guy, he comes down to the studio that night and he goes, Hey, Eric, I, just, I heard you're going to be playing... I drums with Paul Stanley. I'm like, what? He goes, yeah, I just <laughs> ran into him at the China Club. He told me you're going to be playing drums in his thing. <laughs> so I didn't, nobody had even told me. Paul hadn't even told me. I only had seen him that day. Yeah. So I guess he made a decision there when he started telling people, I'm having this guy. Mm-hmm. And um, so I went home and next thing you know, I literally, as I got home, this is in the days of answer machines. No, you didn't <laughs> yeah. have pages. I mean, you might have had pages, but no cell phones or nothing. I remember when I got home, I got a message from the KISS office saying, uh, Oh, Paul, he said he wants to start rehearsal, so you need to, like, fly back to New York in a couple of days. And I had to learn, like, about 25 or 30 songs. So I remember starting to, like, cram. And, you know, this is the days of cassettes and a headphone, you know, learning <laughs> songs. So the whole time from that moment on, I'm, like, learning songs on the plane. And every night after rehearsal, I'd be in my hotel room literally all night, up all night, till I fell asleep listening to the tapes, learning this material. Was there some songs harder than others? Or just well, you, well, it's just a lot of material. Remembering everything. Yes, it's yeah. just a lot of material. It was the bulk of material that was the thing. Nothing to me in KISS is that challenging from a technical point of view. But to learn to play it the way somebody wants it played, and at that time, you know, Paul let me have a lot of free reign to go crazy. I was playing all kinds of double bass stuff and doing my own interpretations of songs, which Paul wanted me to do it that way. He said because he wanted it to be different than KISS. Even though we were playing KISS songs, he said, I don't want, you know, like in other words, he wanted me to hot ride everything up. Gotcha, yeah. He's got a drummer that's already playing it this way. You do it your way. Yeah, and I know that I remember when we played in New York, Eric Carr came to the gig and he had made some comments to people that he was like, he was like, couldn't believe that that Paul was, you know, letting me play those songs, like letting me kind of go crazy more. And he was saying Paul won't, wouldn't let me play that way and kiss and all that. And it's like Paul said, well, I want it to be different. You know, in other words, I'm, I know I'm doing kiss songs or kiss songs that Paul had written, but he wanted it to be a solo tour. So because I guess Eric was disappointed because he wanted to play drums in the band. On the solo tour, right. And Paul told him no, because he said, I'm doing a solo thing. I don't want anybody from kiss. You're. You know, you're the drummer in Kiss, so I want to keep it separate. Which, I, I mean, honestly, when I listened back to some of that stuff, even though early days when I first started playing in Kiss, 
Sometimes I cringe because I go, all right, I guess it was indicative of the times. Everybody wanted a drummer that could play double bass <laughs> and would hot rod up the material. It was yeah. kind of just commonplace in a lot of bands, not just what I was doing in with Paul or in Kiss at that time. It just kind of was the sign of the times. I eventually, by the time we started doing the Unplugged stuff in 95, I decided on my own to tone it down. You know, By 94, 95, we started playing a lot of older material. And I remember saying to Bruce Kulik at the time, you know, we should really like listen more to the, to the records and the tape and kind of maybe start playing a little bit more authentically to that style. In other words, make sure the tempos aren't so out of hand. Cause a lot well, of times Kiss in the 80s was super fast tempos. Yeah. Paul was saying that Gene wanted it up-tempo, but you listen to, like, Lick It Up on the Animalized Tour, it's like, just lick it up, lick it up. It's so fast. Yeah. Like, super fast, you know? Uh, it's crazy. And I know, well, the point of view is that Gene and Paul, they're like yin and yang. You know, it's like the pie symbol. Together, it works. It, they make it, they make a whole thing together. Mm -hmm. But they're so different from each other. And sometimes their point of view, like, I remember when I first started playing live with Kiss in, like, 92, you know, I'd, I'd be on play and I'd see Gene over there and Gene be kind of like trying to get me to speed up and play faster. <laughs> and Gene thought if you play faster, it's going to be more exciting. Mm -hmm. People are going to like it more. And Paul, you know, you'll, you'll understand this. Paul approaches it more from a singer point of view. Sure. Of like, you know, I've got to be able to spit these words out. <laughs> yeah, I've got to be yeah. able to phrase and breathe and, you know, all those points. And, and a lot of times when you're a, a drummer or another instrumentalist, if you don't sing, you may not have the full appreciation for that. Mm -hmm. A lot of times for a singer, he's got to be comfortable with the tempo he sings a particular song at because it's right. for him, it's his phrasing and his feel. Sure. So you have to be conscious of, like, listen to the, what how that guy sings because there is a rhythm or cadence, if you will, to a way a singer sings. And I think it's very important to be always listening to everything, but I always key a lot on the vocals. Mm -hmm. and. So Paul, you mean as a player, yes, always, yeah. always key the rhythm. To me, it's always about the guitar for setting up the vibe, and the feel or attitude of a song, and the vocal because that's the melody. And Paul would be always like this, like slow down, and Gene be speeding up. I mean, and they'd be doing this simultaneously. So a lot of times, I remember I said to him one time, I go, "Hey guys, you, you, this isn't fair. You can't do this to me." Because make know, up your mind, what do you I, want? Right. Well, there's times where I would sometimes just say to myself, "Okay, this is where it's going to be. This is what the tempo is going to be." And I could see both of them trying to get me to go in another direction. I thought, "No, it's going to be right here." And it wasn't me being defiant. It was like I realized at some point I have to have the confidence and go, "All right, you got to take charge. You mm -hmm. are the drummer. Right. You have to You're be the, the foundation. Yeah. So you got to lay it down and go." Here's what it is. If we want to talk about it after the show, say, hey, we need to play this a little quicker or a little slower or adjust it, that's fine. What I found works the best, which Tony Iommi taught me, and he, he used to tell me to use a metronome to start the songs. Not to play to. Mm -hmm. I didn't play to a click, and I never play to a click with Kiss. Sometimes I've seen where people think like Kiss is playing along to a click and has backing tracks or stuff. No, we don't do that. Mm -hmm. We One of the few bands that doesn't nowadays. Yeah, well... We did do it once in Japan, but that was because we were trying to figure out how to do a song that had a lot of this percussion. Like Samurai Sun lot, or something. Yeah, it had yeah. a lot of this yeah, yeah. production value. Right. We were trying, well, how can we try to make it replicated where it sounds? Because we kind of, we didn't do that track completely on our own. It was done in collaboration with, yeah, the, girls. with the girls yeah. and their production people. Mm -hmm. But normally, we always just play everything live. And... Um, but I used to, you know, in the in the in the early '90s when like Revenge, we had we had samples of vocals on samples. Well, if you say you had a keyboard player with yeah. Derek Sherinan, what's he doing in a Kiss song? Is he, is he adding rhythm guitars? Or he would some be playing samples, or? like kind of a grindy <laughs> guitarish sounding thing on a keyboard. Oh, okay, 
doubling some of Paul's parts so Paul could, you know, perform. Doubling some of his guitar parts. Guitar parts. Some of the rhythm. But he would hit the samples. I remember, like, we went in the studio and we put the vocals down for the samples and we chose tempos. Mm. So because we did the song, let's say it was at 120 BPI beats, I mean, BPM beats per minute, I would use a metronome to start the song at 120. So when we got to the samples or any chorus or anything... You know, if I didn't start the song or reasonable, yeah, as long as you're ballpark. Yeah. Because if you get to a course and you realize, hey, I'm a little faster or I'm a little slower, within milliseconds you can compensate. Yeah, just judge it, yeah. But the metronome thing really came from Tony Iommi. He would say to me, Eric, I want you to use a metronome to start the so- you know, to start all the songs. That way, you're going to start those songs every night, always within reason, the same tempo. Hmm. And what I would always do, well, Paul would be rapping, i have the tempo set, and i tapping my foot, and he's like, all right, people, okay, here we go, look at it, one, two, three, boom, and I'd be, I, I already, I'm, you've been preparing, I'm just sitting yeah. here watching the tempo, I'm tapping my foot along just waiting for the musical cue, mm-hmm. or vocal cue, to start songs. And then you go. A quick thing, just going back to Eric Carr, you mentioned he, saw, he came and saw you in New York, you mentioned, you told me a story before, where he said to somebody, oh, that's going to be my replacement in, in Kiss. Yeah, the keyboard player that was playing with us at the time was Gary Corbett, Gary was key, was the Kiss keyboard player from, on tour like, okay on tour at that time as well I remember Gary told me after we played the Ritz in New York in in 89 and um I remember I came backstage and I had never met Eric yet and I, I remember I was wearing it's the, the two things I remember about him I was wearing a Led Zeppelin 2 t-shirt you know with the sleeves cut off because I love Led I mean look every drummer loves Led sure. Zeppelin that's just the way it is I'm, yeah. and pre- not just drummers everybody loves Led yeah. Zeppelin pretty much so I didn't know it at the time that Eric used to wear Led Zeppelin t-shirts oh. all the time. I didn't know it. Yeah. And, and I remember I walked backstage and Paul Stanley goes, Eric, meet Eric, Eric, meet Eric. You know, Eric, this is Eric, you know, like that. Trying to keep it. And Eric, first thing he says to me, he goes, he goes, you're wearing my shirt. And and the, and I so I, at first I was kind of like, you know, I felt a little awkward because <laughs> I'm thinking like, uh, does, is this like good or bad? Does that mean he yeah. thinks it's cool or is he doesn't like it? I didn't know. And then somebody, then Gary, I, when I asked Gary later, the keyboard player, I said, he goes, oh, well, Eric always wore a Led Zeppelin 2 t-shirt uh. on stage a lot of times. And that's what I was wearing. I had no idea. Yeah, sure. So later on, when we were traveling on the bus, Gary had told me that Eric said that to him, like, well, that guy's going to replace me. And he said, oh, Eric, you know, don't worry about it. I don't know why you're getting that way. But Eric, see, I didn't know the backstory that Eric had asked Paul to play on that tour. Gotcha. And that he was told, no, I didn't realize. Later on, I found all these things. So in the in the moment, I just, mm-hmm. I thought that, you know, but he was nice to me. And then I, I remember I saw them on Hot in the Shade next year in 90. They played Long Beach Arena. I went to that show. And um, but I only had met Eric a couple of times, and it was basically like, "Hi, how you doing?" And right. Just quick small talk. Other than that, I had never. And I only saw him play once on Hot and Shade tour, which I thought that was a really good tour. Did you, yeah? I mean, you saw oh, that I tour. did. I did. Yeah, I saw it up yeah. in Fargo, North Dakota. Yeah, I thought it was really cool. They did, you know, because they they played a lot of songs, like twenty five, twenty six songs, and they set. went back to a lot of older tunes that they hadn't done material. in a long time. That was kind of the the bridge between Crazy Nights era and Revenge era, where they were crossing the bridge of like we got to get a little heavier and play some of these older tunes that people want to hear. Yeah, Paul you know? was. I remember. I remember Paul was starting to play like Les Pauls. Yeah, wearing more leather, yeah. less of the body glove stuff. Gene 
Dean was actually looking pretty cool again with all leather and, yeah. and not wearing, like you said, body glove or pink. Not wearing his mother's clothes. Yeah, exactly. As but that he, was it was funny. When you came into the band, it was the first time a blonde guy was ever in Kiss. That was like, oh, a, yeah. oh no, there's a blonde guy. I, you know, I had people write to me saying that, you know, this is wrong. Really? Oh, you should, oh, you just, well, this, this, Kiss should never have a blonde, blonde drummer. <laughs> you should dye your hair. They should, you know, think they should have got somebody else. And I remember I had one guy write to me. And he was heartfelt, but he, he was writing to me saying that, uh, you know, you should change your name because out of respect to Eric Carr, because, you know, oh, mind I you, see. at this point, Eric had passed on. Right. And saying, you know, there's already an Eric, uh, there was already an Eric in the band. I'm thinking like, but that's my real name. Right. That yeah. wasn't his real name. <laughs> right. His name was Paul. You know, you got to remember, Kiss had three Pauls. Good point. Paul Caravello, Paul Fraley, because Ace's real name was Paul. Yeah. And Paul Stanley. Yeah. <laughs> so... You, you know, Ace went by Ace, so he wasn't Paul Fraley to anybody. He, we always know him as Ace. Yeah. And they changed Eric's name because there was already he was they had a Paul. So a lot of people didn't realize there was really at one time three Pauls in Kiss. So I thought it was funny that some people were so impassioned to write to me to say you should change your name, you know, out of respect for Eric Carr. And they have to realize it's like <laughs> yeah. I get your emotional connection, I respect your emotional thing, but you have to remember, to me it's not an emotional thing. Mm-hmm. You know, I, and I didn't even know him. You yeah. know, I mean, I barely, I only had met him. Hi, how are you doing? I didn't even know the guy. So, and I remember when that situation happened, you know, Eric got ill and I was thinking like, you know, they, now they want me to be the drummer. And boy, I was thinking like, you know, I said, wow, what, look how, what a contradiction, if you will, this situation right. is. I said, here, I'm getting this opportunity to join Kiss, a band that I was so influenced by. And I'm thinking like, I'm getting to join one of my all-time favorite bands, at the expense of this guy, dying. right? So I was, I, I, I was very, you know, conflicted, conflicted in, in some ways. And I remember talking with Bruce about it. I said, you know, Bruce, this is like so awkward for me. It's really, and, and and like he said to me, you know, bottom line is, somebody's going to be the drummer, and that's how I I rationalized it. I thought, well, somebody's going to be the drummer, so it might as well be me. Why not me? If I don't, if I wasn't going to be the guy, somebody else was going to is going to mm-hmm. be. So it's, that's you know that's the cycle of life. Life goes on. Right, but technically too, that was a, a great lineup of Kiss with with you and Bruce and, and Paul and Gene. Uh, at the time, was my favorite lineup ever. In well, Kiss history. I, I have to say, look at, I tell this to people all the time because I get people, you know, that sometimes excuse me make comments or have written to me and you know they have their issues with whatever version of the band, the makeup, all those different issues. I tell everybody my favorite version of Kiss is the original Kiss, those first three records, because that's what I was influenced by, impacted by. You know, to me, if I have any emotional connection, it's to that lineup, to that band. So I understand how people feel passionate about whatever they like, but nothing's forever. Right. Um, Because obviously it's my third go around with Kiss, but this one, this lineup of Kiss has been together probably the longest of any version of Kiss. Yeah, over ten years, right? Oh, since so. well, since two thousand four. So we're going on yeah. we're going on like thirteen years, right? Twelve, thirteen years, right? Exactly. Of, of this consistent lineup, no version of Kiss has been mm-hmm. together that You're consistently right. that long. But getting back to the Revenge lineup, I mean, I will say, I think the version we have of Kiss now is great um, for what we do uh, stylistically. Um, you know, I I think Tommy Tommy's the right guitar player for Kiss because he really fits. You know. It's not because he can play a solo, Ace of Souls verbatim. Tommy's roots are in classic hard rock guitar playing 70s style. Tommy was, I mean, I remember seeing Tommy in Black and Blue 30 years ago. Tommy was never a guy that was a whammy arm guy, a thick tapping or any of that, two fingers on the fretboard, none of that. I mean, two hands, none of that. Tommy always was more of like, 
Ronnie Montrose, Jimmy Page, Ace Fraley, Pat Travers. He's that style and genre of a guitar player. Paul Stanley's favorite band is, is Led Zeppelin. He loves Jimmy Page. The reason they loved Ace so much when they found him was because he played a lot of like a Jimmy Page style. So Kiss's roots, even though Kiss doesn't sound like Led Zeppelin, but the influence of bands like Zeppelin and all that are inside of what... Mm-hmm. In, the, in the DNA of Kiss. It's in the yeah. DNA of Kiss. So that's why Ace was the ideal guy in the, in the when they found him. And Tommy is close to that same DNA of what what Kiss, what Paul mm-hmm. hears in his mm-hmm. head stylistically of a guitar player. He wants somebody to place a 70s vibe, yeah. Vibe, mm-hmm. that style guitar playing. So for what we do, I mean, Kiss has kind of come full circle. What we right. do is, is to play more of that style of what Kiss was originally always about. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that being said, I, I will agree with you. I think the Revenge Line was probably musically the tightest version of Kiss, mm-hmm. musically. No doubt about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Bruce I mean, is a, a very underrated uh, guitar player. Uh, very underrated. Bruce is a very accomplished guitar player. Bruce can play any style. I mean, Bruce really could, if he wanted to, could have been like a studio guitar player mm-hmm. where you could basically come in and throw solos or put parts or play on any kind of, a lot of genres and different styles of music. He's well-versed like that, very knowledgeable. I mean, definitely knows his stuff. And I think playing-wise, that band was was really, really tight. And I think, like, Bruce and I got along because Bruce... Once he met me, he realized that I was a guitar freak, like a guitar mm. head. I love guitars, guitar-oriented music. Like, I used to be able to hum all his solos to him off Revenge album, and he got a kick out of that. He, I think he realized, <laughs> okay, I got a guy in the band now that really gets what I do, but really has passion about guitar like how he does. Mm-hmm. So I think he found an affinity towards me because of that, and he knew that I really focused on the guitar Live as a performer, like what you're playing, playing, to. playing yeah. to and playing off of. That's what made us so tight. I mean, I used to have one of Bruce's four by twelve Marshall cabinets up on my drum riser. I took a out of the back of one of his heads. I would have that with a long cord going to a four twelve cabinet on my riser. So I was getting Bruce's sound guitar playing oh. right there. It was in your monitor, basically. Yeah. Well, well, it was, it was one your monitor. of the monitors. Yeah. It was his tw- <laughs> a Marshall cabinet was one of my yeah. monitors directly what he was playing. Wow, because. For me, I always wanted to feel like I want to feel like I'm playing with the band, and everybody might be different on what they focus on. I mean, I do listen to everything. I try to play with Gene and with Paul and everyone together. I listen to the whole body of the song, vocally, everything. Because to me, the main thing is the rhythm guitar for setting up the vibe, and the vocal melody. Mm-hmm. To me, dictates how you're going to feel it. You know, right, right, right. Playing how the singer feels on that particular night. Yeah. It's amazing too. You talk about vocal because you do a lot of singing and kiss a lot of the harmonies and stuff. But every song, it's amazing to me too how all three Kiss drummers have similar voices. You know, and that was never intentional. Now maybe with Eric, I don't know because obviously they were replacing Peter and uh, first time replacing any member. Mm -hmm. So I'm assuming that they wanted a guy that could sing as well. Yeah. With me, they didn't even know I could sing. Oh, really? No, they never knew I could sing because when I was playing in Badlands, we didn't have any background vocals. So, but they didn't know. So when we first started rehearsing, I remember thinking like, okay, well, what part, which parts do you want me to, I remember the, when the, the, the first day they set up, I remember telling them the text to give me a microphone. And I remember saying to Gene, what parts do you want me to sing? And Gene's like, uh, you know, they're kind of like, oh, we didn't know you really sang. They didn't say that. They go, okay, well, let's just try this. So Gene would say, and Gene, I got to admit, they really taught me a lot how to sing. Now, my mother was a, is a singer. 
So if I get any singing ability, it's probably from her because my dad wasn't a great singer. Mm. He could sing, but he wasn't. Didn't. So how did they teach you about singing? Well, basically, I'd say, well, Jane will go, well, what's your range? I'd go, well, he'd go, okay, can you sing this part? And I'd go, um, okay, or no, that's too high. And Gene would go, well, I normally sing that part, but you can do it. I'll just do the other part. Hmm. Like Gene could switch to any part right. pretty much any time of yeah. any harmony in any of the songs. Hmm. Gene's much more musical than he tries to let on. Oh, I know. He tries to pretend and play it down like, oh, I don't really know music. No, yes, he does. Yeah. He knows He knows more than just scales. He knows chord voicings. He knows He's, harmonies. and how he can, can, he can sing any of the parts. You can tell by his choices as a bass player. That he knows because he's always going against the melody. He's very McCartney, Beatlesque. Yeah. You know, he's very uh, he's very technically gifted. Well, he's he's much more musical than he wants to take credit for yeah. or allow. He likes to just think it like, oh, I don't really know what I'm doing. I'm, you play with your dick. Yeah, I'm so, just yeah, more okay. like a, yeah. it's just like dumbbell rock, and I'm just it's more of like I'm an enter- yeah. I'm an entertainer. Yeah, it's not you the know, case. and I'm an entrepreneur and all those other things. You know, mm-hmm. business minded and mm-hmm. all that. Let me tell you, both of those guys are musical. Those guys, Paul Stanley, probably. If you were going to do music trivia, I've met some guys that know a lot about a lot of obscure stuff. I've never met anybody like <laughs> really? Stanley. Unbelievable. <laughs> really? He's, he's like the Rain Man. <laughs> I'm serious. What do you mean, like about, like about 60s bands and stuff like that? Do wop I mean, I mean, he'll tell you the band, who sang it, what label they're on, who produced it. He'll tell you everything. It's And I'm talking really seriously obscure stuff. Wow. Like one-hit wonder stuff. Like unbelievable. He really has a wealth of knowledge um, that... On more than anybody I've ever met. Let me ask you this. You mentioned that you and Bruce got along pretty well. When you guys, you, you talked about the acoustic, uh, the unplugged, when yep. they brought uh, Ace and Peter back. Were you guys starting to figure out that maybe something was going to happen? And did you guys ever have private conversations? Like, is this? Yeah, we, yeah we did. You know, something, um, and, and speaking of, that still might be one of my favorite, or if not my, maybe my most famous favorite uh, Kiss thing that I ever did or played What's on that? was the, oh, the TV Unplugged. It was amazing, yeah. Yeah, I, but because it was really organic and it was real. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, at, in all fairness, you know, we already had been doing a bunch of Kiss conventions and had kind of gotten used to playing in that format. It takes a while to learn to adjust to playing, not just acoustic level-wise, but learning to adapt your playing style to, the, the, to taking Kiss material, which is normally loud and heavy, right. to learn how to adapt to a unplugged format. Yeah. I, I remember when we first started rehearsing, when Ace and Peter first came down, uh, they were fish out of water, mm. big time, in that element, because they were they were out touring on their own, doing their Bad Boys tour thing, but they weren't playing acoustic guitars and playing mellow. Um, so they had to cut it, it. It was, a, for lack of a better way of putting it, like a learning curve, and it is for everybody. When you switch to a different format of how you're going to present the same material... It's like if you're going to do country versions of your songs or, you know, like what Pat Boone did, uh, mm-hmm. you know, with, with the metal metal songs. songs. Yeah, yeah, when you're going to do a different style, you have to ad- adapt to that and get comfortable with it. And um, the, when they first came down, I could tell that they were very uncomfortable and they were fish out of water. And so I remember talking with Bruce and I'm thinking, you know, of course, Bruce always thought, and Bruce was right. He always thought, oh, they'll probably do a reunion at some point. And when he thought that it might happen, I said, ah, I don't see, After, in all honesty, after rehearsing with those guys for a week, I thought, oh, they're not going to do a reunion tour. There's no way they can. Just technically they weren't up to snuff at the time. Yeah, and yeah. I mean this with all due respect. Yeah, yeah, right. It's not the bash on anybody. Yeah. Bottom line is, believe me, I was there. Mm-hmm. They were definitely not up to snuff. And I thought there's no way they can do it. And that was in the summertime. We did that. That was in August. We went into the studio 
after that was done, then we started working on Carnival Souls. We had been doing demos oh. for the previous year and a half of demos. We gotcha. were going to small studios all the time working on riffs. Paul's house with ADATS. Gene, Gene would get book little small studios around town. I remember this one place called Pacifica. We did a lot of demos there. Hmm. We'd just go and put riffs down. When we first were going to start working on it, we actually got into a rehearsal room with Bob Ezrin, and Bob said, you know, I don't think I'm the right guy for what you guys are doing. And oh, for so, the Carnival record, yeah. Bob was involved. Oh, wow. Well, Bob didn't end up doing it. Right, he, no, yeah. So then they got Toby... Toby... Uh, right. Toby Wright. Yeah, yeah. But... We didn't start working to re- actually recording and working on the record until after MTV oh, Unplugged. Oh, okay. We had done that. That was done at Sony Studios in August of 95. We went in the studio starting like September, maybe October in L.A. In, to, to work on Carnival Souls, actually tracking. We actually had finished the record in January, which was now 96. We were literally finished mix. We were down to maybe the last one or two songs mixing, and Gene and Paul. So oh, we, we got, we're going to have a meeting at Gene's house, and I thought, okay, we're going to have a meeting just to go over like, okay, here's what we're here's what our game plan is, and they said we're going to do a reunion tour with Ace and Peter and makeup. And uh, I was like, uh, I, I wasn't happy. Now Bruce was not surprised because he told me that I always felt that even back when years I used to say that to Eric Carr that I always believe at some point probably going to happen. It's not a matter of when, it's a matter of if. Mm-hmm. I mean, a matter of if, it's a matter of when. when. And he was right. So, But I was basing my opinion and feelings on what had transpired six months before that, mm-hmm. back in August. Well, basically four months ago. But in the meantime, we, you know, we come to realize that, obviously, after that, they were planning and plotting the whole thing, but they still kept going forward with, all right, we're going to still do this right because they didn't know for sure if it was going to happen. Right. If they could agree on everything or if it was going to be a success. They, you know, it was too many unanswered questions. So, you know, and Gene and Paul, uh, I always give them credit because they told us to our face. Mm-hmm. It's not like uh, all of a sudden I get a call from a manager yeah, that's, yeah, that's, yeah. or some lawyer. It was like, no, they told us man to man, face to face, which is the right way to do it. I always respect them for that. And even if they're not telling you something, if they're telling you something you don't want to hear, mm-hmm. the bearer of bad news, at least it came directly which to me was cool. Um, did you get like uh, I mean, they could get like a severance package? Well, what, like here's what they did. Um, because they there was still a lot of unanswered questions about whether it would even be a success, um, Doc McGee then became on board, became the manager. Doc believed right from get-go that, you know, because I think they wanted to go and do a trial run and see how things go. And Doc's like, no, we're doing Tiger Stadium for a show mm-hmm. and I'm going to make this thing. But, but you know, Huge Doc right. had the power to help you know, Doc delivered what he told them he was going to do. Absolutely. Right. You know, so I mean, Doc's done a lot of good things for them in all these years. But um, they they told us, you know, we don't know how long this is going to last or what we're going to do. I mean, they were basically, there was a lot of unanswered questions. So they had a record in the can. Mm-hmm. We finished mixing it. So it was a little awkward to be going to the studio for the next couple of weeks after that while we were finishing mixing the last couple of things. Yeah. And here I know it's already... It's kind of like a lame duck project. Well, but well, no, but they were... I think what they... From a business point of view, they probably figured, okay, we're going to give this a try. They could always use it to say to Ace and Peter, hey, well, you know, if things don't... If you guys don't stay in line or things don't work, you know, we have Eric and Bruce on retainer. We were on retainer. Okay, they kept on retainer. Kept on retainer for the whole year. Okay. So they kept us all in retainer cool. for all of 96, yeah. That's so cool. It was very cool. So, you know, they had plan B in place and kept mm-hmm. their options open. But I think they had to because of the unanswered questions. But once the tour, right off the bat, boom, once they started, you know, it started selling out and doing big, by the time they got to, um, 
a couple now that was in January. By the time they came to LA and were playing the forum in August, a couple weeks before that, I got a call from Gene. He said, "Hey Eric, you know we're going to be coming in town and playing. You should come to the show. Uh, we should get together and have a talk." And so I knew right then that the talk's going to be. Yeah, we're staying in makeup and. Thanks. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, and that's exactly what it was. Okay. I remember. I tell people the story that I remember. I had just bought a couple months earlier. I'd bought a little Mazda RX-7, which was like one of the cool little sport yeah. cars. And I remember I put it for sale in the paper the next day after I got the call from Gene. <laughs> I did. Yeah. Because I knew that I was. I thought, okay, you need to like kind of downsize, downsize, consolidate things because even though you're on a retainer, uh, you don't know what the future holds going forward. Right. What? Uh, when did you start hearing? Uh, you know, because obviously the, the the reunion came and went, and then the you know the retirement tour and all this sort of stuff when did you start getting calls of eric we want to talk to you about coming back to the band well if it even went that way well a little bit but i know that i got a call in early 91 i was actually with keith larue over in japan for a kiss fan expo mm -hmm. and i remember we were getting ready to go to thailand from there on a vacation my lawyer had called me and um he got hold of me over in japan somehow and he called me and said, hey, I got a call from Kiss, and they want to talk about you playing in the band. I think, I guess there was issues with Peter. He couldn't agree to his agreement or whatever. And I, he said, um, I said, wow, that's weird. I said, so, and I, I said, I'm getting ready to go to the airport, like today, to fly to Thailand. I said, so, he said, well, just go on your vacation. By the time you get home on Saturday, everything will be worked out. I remember asking him, I said, so what are they going to do about the makeup? Am I going to wear, like, uh, is they going to come up with a new design? Or what he goes? They haven't decided yet. But he mm. goes. He goes, and that he said they haven't decided. Now this was the beginning of a week. He said, just go on vacation. When by the time you get back Saturday, everything will be figured out. So I went, came, you know, went, and by the time I got home, I remember calling him. I got back, and he said, I saw what they did decide. You know what's going on? Oh yeah, it's definitely happening. You're going to play drums, and they're going to have you just wear the cat makeup. Because I was similar size to Peter. Right. The boots actually fit me, ironically. <laughs> so they had me come down to, to do a photo session with Niels Lozauer. And Tommy and Paul were there. And I had never put the makeup on, knew nothing. So Paul basically put it on me, showed me every step of the way. Here's how you do it. Process A, B, C, D. Was that weird, that, trying to figure it all out? Well, they, they showed me how to do it because we put it all on ourselves. And mm -hmm, yeah. other than that first time that Tommy and Paul helped me, I've done it on my own ever since. But... Did it look like, did you blow it the first couple times? Did it look weird? Well, I, what I did is, like, when we did the first photo session, I remember Gene coming down, and they had Gene come over after I was doing, they had me do a photo session on my own, because what they wanted to do, is like, a lot of people, like I said, again, the revisionist history, a lot of people try to say, like, oh, they just went and slipped Eric Singer in there, and they didn't tell anybody, and that's yeah. not true. It was announced pretty much. Of course. Start, right? They called the promoter and said, we haven't agreed with Peter. Where Eric Singer is going to play, we're having him in the makeup. They sent over an insert that they stuck in the tour book to let you, and then they they reprinted the posters that were all over Australia and put new posters up with me in makeup okay. with the band. I mean, this was never like some on the sly, yeah, yeah, yeah. not announced. They they told the promoter and they put it on. They changed the posters. That's the absolute truth. So they basically said. Um, you know, it was kind of make it up as you go along, because I think they didn't really, you know, it happened so fast, they basically, I think, told Peter, if you don't come to agreement, we're going to get Eric Singer, right. and he didn't believe him. He called their bluff, and then once they already decided to have me do it, from what I understand, Peter's lawyer tried to, like, mm. you know, hey, uh, you know, and they said, no, not only that, we're taking the offer off the table, and that's it. They made the decision. 
did it ever feel weird for you to to think, okay, I, I guess I'll be the new Catman, or was it just well, business, I didn't or? have much time to really process the thought. I mean, to me, and I say this respectfully to anyone that has any issues with anything, it's not an emotional issue to me. It never was. Mm. Um, you never had a problem with like, oh my gosh. No, because I mean, the only the only time I remember, you got to remember, I had never put it on other than the photo shoot. I never practiced in it. We did no production rehearsals or anything. We were supposed to. My first show, I popped my cherry in makeup. Because I never had done Live it. Live in front of yeah, the crowd. Yeah, I mean, the first time I learned it, like, I remember you, you, I got dressed, and I remember doing the first show, I remember coming down the rise, and I still remember, I can remember that moment. There's certain moments in your life yeah. that, you're, that are very surreal. I had, like, an out-of-body experience, literally. I mean, I was playing. I felt like I was inside of this other kind of thing, entity, because I remember playing, I'm going, wow, this is weird. I'm playing with Kiss in makeup on stage. There's Ace, Paul, and Gene. And I'm playing drums. <laughs> but I felt like I was literally out of body just for that moment. It's the only time it ever felt weird. And it was only because it was the first time I had ever played with makeup on my face ever, in a costume yeah. ever. I had no idea. What, I didn't know what it was going to feel like to do it, if it was going to be a problem. Did you notice it at first when you were playing? Does it feel greasy? Well, or? I felt like it felt like I was wearing a mask, if uh, you will. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it felt like I was, like I said, and I, uh, when I mean out of body, I felt like I was inside of this, almost as if, as if you climbed in of some Other thing guy, with yeah. a mask yeah, and you yeah, felt yeah, yeah, like yeah. I that's what I felt like it felt kind of surreal in a way I wore I, a mask once in my wrestling career and I just still remember how weird it felt to yeah. be wearing it now I only wore, had I worn it a hundred times I'd be used to it, but the first time it felt like I was wearing like a scuba divers mask or something weird that you just want to yeah. take off you know well, you see a lot of like basketball players when they break their nose or their face they right. wear a clear mask yeah and a lot of them have a, a hard time adjusting to it because mm -hmm. it just it starts making you you get preoccupied thinking about that and how that feels as opposed to just playing. Doing your gig, yeah. Or performing. So that was the only time it felt kind of surreal. And it, But I remember being kind of cool because you got to remember, part of me goes back to being like a kid. Yeah, going, climbing up the balcony in Cleveland, yeah. Hey, I told people the, the, the second time I saw Kiss, I saw them open. Uh, Rush was the opening band, mm -hmm. and it was on the Hotter Than Hell tour. Around the end of 75, something like that. And I remember being on the front of the stage. The, the stage was the Akron Civic Theater. And it was a really high stage. When you went down by the orchestra pit, they used to let you down to the orchestra pits back then. Okay. And I remember taking a chair, a regular kind of auditorium chair, and I stuck it like this against the stage. And I climbed up on it because I was really small. I was only about that big. I was yeah. a very tiny. Uh, I'm small now, but I was a very tiny teenager. I was uh -huh. probably maybe five feet tall. So I climbed up, stood up on that, and I was leaning on the stage like this on top of the chair, right in front of Ace, and I still remember going like this on his platform boots. <laughs> I remember him throwing boots. a pick, and I remember having to jump down to get his pick. <laughs> you know, those kind of moments you don't sure. forget. I mean, so the, the the fan and kid in me always stays connected to that kind of feeling and emotion, knowing how unique and special what I get to do is. I was that kid. It's funny, because my kids are getting into Kiss now from Scooby-Doo and just from, you know, being around me listening to Kiss. And they really, uh, they know Kiss as the Demon, Spaceman, yeah. Catman, and Starchild. And that's what they know. They, they know the and, icons. And, and that, to some people, that really pisses them off. But, but to, to other people, they look at, they think, it, it, the funny thing is, evolution. some people think it's so cool. They think yeah, I think cool. it is. I mean, you know, when Paul says, and Gene too, I was going to ask you about this, about how Kiss will continue without them. And it's like, Kiss is probably the one band that can do that. Can you see a time of that happening? Well, you know, I know that people have talked about that. I don't know. I don't really know what the real feelings of that Gene and Paul, you know, to segue into something like that. That's the transition period would be 
what I don't fully understand how right how they will find like when is the time or is there ever a time or you know is that, is that something that's a viable thing to happen? I think if it's done right, it could be. But I think the way to do it is to start with a, you know a whole fresh. Would you do thing. it? Let's say Paul and Gene say we're going to stop putting new guys in. We uh, want you to continue. I, I don't. I that's not something that I really want to do. To be honest with you, I've said it before. I know. I don't know how. I think maybe other people have different sentiments about it. Whether it's other guys in the band or Doc mm-hmm. or whoever. But for me, if Gene or Paul aren't doing it, to me it would be awkward or difficult. Up to this day, I've always maintained that once one of those guys is done. Then to me, that's when it's done. Well, and, and you too have the longest tenure in Kiss out of anybody besides Paul and Gene. I mean, yeah, it, probably. it probably wouldn't be any fun for you to play without those two guys. They're your friends and your bandmates, you know. Well, yeah, just I, I you know, everyone has their own point of view of what they mm-hmm. think makes sense or what would work or not. Some people think it wouldn't work at all. Other people think, yeah, sure, why not? But if there's a fan base out there for it, obviously it'll work. I think it's how it's done. If it's, if it's done the right way, it, it's there's. Yeah, it's a possibility that it could be something that w- could work. But I personally thought it would be best to just go and do it. Find four young, new guys, four young new guys, like when they were young and started, that have this kind of energy and the right look and everything. It's probably possible. I know there was time a talk at years ago about trying to do a TV show where they were going to call it Kiss the Next Generation. And the uh-huh. whole idea, you know, kind of like one of these reality shows based on to find. finding the members and putting it together and, and, and it becoming this new entity. Mm-hmm. But the problem was, if once, like like Doc said, once you do that, it's a great idea. And, and But once you do that, then Kiss as it is now, you're done. Right. You can't do that kind of a show and then yeah. still keep being Kiss. So I think that's what probably made it not happen because they realized, well, no, we still want to play. Right. So if you decided you don't want to play anymore, then... It would, then then you, do, you do the announce with the big retirement done, then... I, I mean, I don't know if it's still something that would have a chance to still happen in a, in a format like that. I think if that if that be one of the ways that might be cool to do mm-hmm, it, to do it right. is do it through a TV show, kind of like an American Idol mm-hmm. thing like that, where you create putting this whole sure, thing whole together, thing. and then it goes on tour. Because a TV show would be the vehicle to get it all the attention for them people wanting to go see to it. To go, right, and then see how, how it draws. I think just a, a couple few more questions. I was, I, we just were on the Kiss Cruise together, and one of the big things is the the push-off set where you guys play like all these obscure songs yeah. and all this sort so of stuff. So we call it the Sail Away Show. Sail Away Show. So, um, and you mentioned a little bit about how, how, how you guys came up with the ideas for those songs. Because you played some very, very obscure stuff, like Strange Ways and Mainline and stuff that I hadn't even heard before. Is that you and Tommy bringing that to the table? Are you guys getting together and each each one of you has a list? Or how do you decide well, which one of these really weird songs to play? It's, it's everybody putting their input, but... Those particular songs that you mentioned, absolutely, was Tommy and I. Oh, yeah? You absolutely. Guys, oh, no doubt about it. You guys it. get on the phone. In fact, they didn't want to do Strange Ways. I kept saying, guys, do it. I know you think it's too dirgy and slow. See, th- it's not that they don't like a lot of the songs. It's not that they don't think they're cool. It's that they think that the fans might not like it. It's too obscure and only like five people might like it out of 500 or, or 25 out of 5,000, whatever. But I always tell them, hey, Tommy and I have a unique perspective that you guys will never have. We were actually fans mm-hmm. in the beginning. Right. And you have two guys. And it's not like all of a sudden Kiss hired two fans to be in the band. Yeah, no, yeah. come on. Two we, accomplished we, musicians, we're but yeah. guys that made, make a living playing music my whole, for over 30 years. Yeah. But, but the reality is we were both big Kiss fans, and we had that in our DNA. From a fan point of view perspective, 
and now we have the understanding of being a band member and being a member of KISS. So we have a unique perspective. And I told this to Tommy. I said, Tommy, you and I are the only guys that ever were in KISS that have that perspective. Because I, right. I don't think any of the other guys were genuinely KISS fans That's like That's a great we point. Great Eric point. Carr, Vinny Vincent, Mark St. John, Bruce. None of those guys yeah. were KISS fans growing up. Like Tommy and I were genuinely KISS fans. So, and for me too, but a generation later, like 80s yeah. Kiss, that's why I love 80s Kiss, because yeah. that was my band from that time frame. But you're right, you started and you live that for the well, rest of your life. It's all relative to each that's person's right, timeline. Right. And the thing is, I, you know, I tell them, I'm not saying that we're all automatically right, but we give a unique perspective, and we really do talk to a lot of the fans. I know a lot of the stuff that fans would like. It's like, like Tommy was, said, let's just, let's just learn some songs, Eric, you and I. When we get to rehearsal, we'll at least be brushed up on it so we can play it to make it sound at least reasonably good as a jumping-off point. Yeah. Because when you're all for learning something new for the first time, it can be a little awkward at sure. first because everybody's kind of like... Oh, and they're just going to oh, give up uh, on it. Yeah. yeah. And they'll give up, right. They throw in the towel too quick. Like, same thing with Oath. You know, we convinced them to do that, <laughs> even though they didn't want to do it. And you see what a big hit People it was went nuts we for it. People went nuts for Strange Ways, too. I think on the cruise, that's a song that stands out to me as the one that people just loved. You couldn't believe you were doing it. And you I know? think it's cool to do that. Look, at, I'm not saying that we're going to be able to do the greatest version of it, but, but the thing is, we like this last cruise, that to me was the most successful cruise so far, at least the best one, I think from a fan point of view. And just overall, um, you know, you learn to do what... You learn to figure out what works and what yeah. doesn't over yeah, time, yeah. and you kind of learn to hone it in and make it an even more better event and successful. But the one thing we learned, like we decided instead of playing acoustic, play electric. Yeah, it, it was good. And I think it worked better. Yeah. Um, so, we, you know, trying some different things. We put a lot of thought into doing that alive thing. We had costumes. Oh, yeah, the candelabra Everything. Co- all of our costumes, the equipment. Gene, Paul bought, you know. Flying V. Oh, flying V and the <laughs> grabber bass. I did an old concert time drum kit. We did all that to only play two times. Yeah, and you even had the Peter Chris vest, the yeah, old vest that where they would take from off. Ca- from Cadillac High School. Yes. Yeah, that, that they did for yeah. that. Yeah. No, we not only spent the time and put the effort into, as well as the financial cost. I mean, people don't realize to make costumes, oh. a lot of times you have to make double those. Those costumes are not oh, cheap. Dude. Yeah, I hear you. You know, every pair of boots is between three and $5,000. Wow. You know, so... Yeah, usually to do a whole new set of costumes, and then if you end up having to make doubles for mm-hmm. a tour, you're, you know you could be looking between fifty, eighty thousand dollars. Does that come out of band expenses, or is that is that something that you have to pay for? No, no, the band, that's band a expenses. that's a production expense. Gotcha. But the thing is, we got all this equipment and the costume and everything just to play that set and Twice. go for that look yeah. two times. Right. So I mean, when people want to say that, oh, these guys, believe me, I've been in a lot of bands. Gene and Paul do care. Because if they didn't, they wouldn't even be touring. They don't need to tour. They don't have to do any of this anymore if they don't want to. They do it because they love Kiss. They like doing it. Right. But, you know, they want to do it on their terms, which they've earned the right to do it on their terms when and how they want to do it. And nobody has a right to tell them differently. Right. You're right. You know? what? Uh, what's next for Kiss now? It seems that you guys are doing some spot shows here and there and doing the cruise. Do you think you'll do another record, or is it just kind of... You, you know, I don't know. Um, I know we have a, a show like in January. Mm-hmm. There's another show in February. Paul's going to do some some of those Soul Station shows, which I play drums with him at right. that, which is kind of cool because it's something different. Um, and wh- on one hand, I was kind of surprised that Paul asked me to do it, only because in the past, when he had done solo stuff, he always usually intentionally wanted to use different people to keep yeah. it separate from Kiss. Right. But, you know, I have a good, musically and personally, I have a great relationship with Paul. I mean, I get along with yeah, him. Yeah, you guys Yeah, you guys are hanging on a lot of the I, Kiss crews. I, I get along always with Paul, always when I'm on tour and stuff. I mean, when we're home, a lot of people think like, oh, do you guys hang out? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> not really that much because Paul's got three little kids. Yeah. He's so preoccupied with, with doing 
basketball with his son and j- whatever the kids do. Yeah, ballet. You know, being a dad, or, yeah. exactly. He doesn't have time to. He doesn't have time to go hang out. Once in a while, he might call me. Hey, what's going on? Or you want to go to this concert or go something? But you know, he's 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 got a full plate. But otherwise, with Kiss recording wise, anything like that, I, I know we have a, f- a few things planned. Um, you know, besides the spot dates, I guess they're working on some other. Doc's always got something. So you just kind of wait and see what, yeah, what the call Yeah, he's got is, some yeah. irons in the fire. Um, I would like to do another record just because I like being in a studio. I actually mm. enjoy it. To me, um, it's a different creative kind of a thing. I know it's a, long, a lot of times a long hours and a lot of work, um, but to me that's when we get, there's more of a chemistry with us guys. When we get to go to the studio every day and just kind of be around each other and yeah, hang out. Yeah, yeah. And that, that reminds me of, you know, you're never going to recapture that being a kid mm-hmm. when you hung out with your friends in the basement jamming and all that. Yeah, 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 in the but garage. But the closest you can get to that is when you either rehearse for a tour or when you're going to work on song ideas and be in the studio making music together or new stuff, being creative and all that. That's, to me, the closest you can ever get to recreating that kind of... Uh, yeah, that that feeling. That feeling of, yeah. you know, everybody knows what that's feeling like, especially when you were a kid when you just jammed. Oh, yeah, totally. At somebody's party, your parents go out of town and you go yeah. to the basement and we get together <laughs> and jam and go crazy. Last uh, question. What's your favorite Kiss song to play live, and is there one that you haven't played that you always wanted to? Uh, you know, I like a lot of different Kiss songs for different reasons, but the song that I always like, and I know it's not from a drumming point of view, but I like Do You Love Me, just because to me the sound of that riff... The melody, just everything about it to me is like, it's like a prototypical Kiss song, mm-hmm, if you will. Mm-hmm. It's almost like the right, it has all the ingredients that a Kiss song should be. Yes. Sing along, melodic, simple. Right. Remember, Kiss means keep it simple. Stupid. Yeah, yeah. And um, so I always like I always liked that song. Um, I mean, I, lo- I like a lot of the heavy stuff that Gene, you know, I love She and or Parasite and mm-hmm. stuff like that. Strange Ways I always liked because of the guitar solo. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I love a lot of other songs, but I'd say that's probably the one that I like, probably, if I have to pick one. Cool. Is the one that you haven't played that you'd like to, uh, from any of the albums, even if you knew that you probably never would? Well, we played, you know, at this point, I probably pretty much played everything off of the first three, and those were the more influential ones to me. But I'm talking like, I heard, like, Hate the other day, like, your drum part on that is yeah, amazing. I'd like, like to play, great yeah, too. I always wanted to play Hate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's stuff that I wish we could have played, you know, you got to remember, some of those songs, when we recorded them... That's kind of the only time we ever learned sure, it. Sure, of course. It. And then that's it. Yeah. You never rehearsed it after that. You learned it to be able to cut it. Yeah. And do it. Yeah. And then that was it. Um, Hate, I always thought was, to me, that was like the cousin of of um, Unholy. Yeah. I always thought that would be a, that'd be a cool song to do. Um, be a cool song to do on the on the sail away because you'd, you'd probably do it. You'd have to rehearse it a little bit. But yeah, we could. Uh, I know we could learn it. Mm. I mean, I know I can play anything off of any of the records. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there's a couple of you know, songs. Tommy always wanted to do All Hell's Breaking Loose. Yeah. Um, which Paul, Paul messed around with a little Kinda bit. Kind of did it, yeah. What be this and what be that? Yeah. Well, he said, you guys you know, did a little, little bit of it, yeah. I mean, the funny the thing is, I know that everyone, like you like a lot of the 80s stuff because mm-hmm. you grew up on that. Some of the stuff, at the time, you thought it was cooler than what it probably really is. Right. When you go back in retrospect, you think like, oh, I used to think, I thought that was so good. It's, it doesn't really hold yeah, up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some of the material doesn't hold up as well as others, but probably there's probably stuff off of... Uh, I always thought I would be cool to do mm. off of the Elder. It's another one, yeah. Um, there's another one off, or, or Danger. Yeah. Of a Creatures. Oh, yeah. I always thought that was kind of cool. The, I'll tell you the song I always wanted to play, which 
There's two songs which I tried to get them to consider playing on the cruise this year. One of them was It's My Life. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Obscure. I, I love that song. Mm-hmm. I always, to this day, go, why didn't you guys ever release that as a single? Yeah. It's so kiss-sounding, anthemic. Yeah. I have no idea. And Paul wrote it. Um, right. I know it was on Wendy O. Williams' record first, and the Kiss used it as an outtake track mm-hmm. for Psycho Circus or something? Something like that. Or, or maybe, one of these records. Yeah. Maybe that the was only available in Japan or yeah, something. Something like that. Something yeah. like that. That I always thought was cool. And I always thought the version we did of Rock and Roll Radio, the Ramones cover oh. song. Which that was done yeah. by only Gene Paul and myself. Do you remember Rock and Roll Radio? Yeah, or yeah, yeah. Yeah. Something like that, yeah. Yeah, we yeah, it 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 goes dun 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 And we I remember we stacked it up. We did the wall of sound thing, uh-huh. which is the way um I forget who was the guy that Phil produ- Spector. Yeah, Phil Spector Wall of Sound. He produced that album. Mm-hmm. And the funny thing is we were told later when Phil Spector did it, the only one that sang on it is Joey Ramone. None of the Ramones played on that record. Oh, okay. The album he produced, he used studio guys. Oh, okay. Because gotcha. they couldn't play to the level that yeah, he wanted, yeah, yeah, evidently. Yeah. Well, cool, man. I met you in 1992 outside the whiskey for the first time, and here we are at 23 years what, later. What, what was I doing there? Uh, you went. To, I went to see Cold Gin, and you were you were there to come see. Was the it show. the Troubadour? You mean? Uh, Troubadour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because yeah, we took pictures. Yeah, I have, I have I pictures picture on you. my phone from that concert from that really? night. I got a picture of you and me uh, from that from outside right there. I was like, yeah. oh my gosh, is Eric Singer? I remember with Bruce and uh, Gene and Paul and I all were there. That night, and Jerry Mel- yeah, Jerry Miller covered it in Metal Edge oh, yeah. at that time. <laughs> yeah. Had like a little one page where she had a bunch of different pictures, and Tommy was playing in Cold Gin mm-hmm. with Jamie St. James mm-hmm. from Black and Blue. Yeah, absolutely, man. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. Cool, man. I appreciate it. You're Thanks, welcome. dude. You're welcome. Great stories, great rock and roll stories from uh, Kiss's longest drummer, Eric Singer. And thanks again to Eric for taking the time to be here. And if you haven't seen Kiss live, now you got to take some time and go be there. Because this summer, the Freedom to Rock tour is going on. And this is a show, people! You'll get your money's worth and you'll not leave disappointed. Kiss, one of the greatest rock and roll bands of all time. One of the greatest rock and roll show bands of all time. My favorite Kiss concert? Ah, it's hard to say, man. But I will say this. One time in 1994, I had a Smoky Mountain Wrestling Show, and Kiss was playing the Revenge lineup, uh, which included Eric Singer and Bruce Kulick. They were playing a show in Nashville, and uh, I had car trouble. Couldn't make the show. Could not make the Smoky Mountain show. Ran out of gas. Dog ate my homework. Had to wash my hair. Could not make the show. The only wrestling show I have no-showed. The only one I specifically went, I'm not going, because I went to see Kiss instead. And they rocked it. They rocked it in Nashville that night. So uh, sorry to all the fine people that went to the Smoky Mountain Wrestling Show to see me that night. I had to go see Kiss. I've probably seen Kiss maybe a dozen times. I had a great time uh, every show that I've gone to. Most recently, I saw Kiss twice uh, in Las Vegas, where I interviewed Paul Stanley before the show. The great first meeting between Paul and, uh, and Jericho took place before a Kiss concert, and now you can get a chance to go see Kiss live. 40 cities across the U.S. and Canada. If you want to see where they're going to be close to you, go to kissonline.com. Don't you dare miss it. It's Kiss, man. And uh, Another cool thing about Paul Stanley, he's a huge MMA fan. And we actually talked about this week's big fight, UFC 200, on Saturday. 
Mark Hunt versus Brock Lesnar. What's going to happen? What's your prediction? Is Mark Hunt going to knock out Brock Lesnar? Is Brock Lesnar going to use his uh, superior wrestling skills to uh, take down Mark Hunt? All I know is everyone's going to be talking about it, and whether Brock wins or loses, don't matter. He'll come back to Raw. Even if he loses in five seconds, he could come back to Raw the next night. Uh, take the microphone away from Paul Heyman. Explain to everybody that he did it for himself because he had to know. He couldn't live his life with regret, and then some idiot heel will come down like me and just get the crap kicked out of him, and uh, Brock will be the biggest guy in the show again so good luck to brock lesnar hope he whips mark hunt's ass and uh i hope that you whip uh your 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 back pain's ass what a segue that was <laughs> if you're having problems with back pain or any other pain you got to go to uh, ddpyoga.com slash Jericho, and check out this amazing program. It will get your life back on track. It did for me. I'm telling you the truth. You know it did. And you'll get uh, get 10% off anything you purchase for a limited time by using uh, the uh, password Y2J, especially uh, if you're going to buy the new documentary, Resurrection of Jake the Snake Roberts. Great piece of work done by DDP and DDP Yoga. Go to ddpyoga.com slash Jericho and type in Y2J for 10% off anything on the website. And, of course, thanks to Amazon. They've been with this podcast since our first episode. Easiest way to support Talk is Jericho. Use my Amazon links anytime you do any online shopping. All my links are at podcast1.com. Click on the Killer Deals button in the top right corner of the page, then hit the Talk is Jericho button. I got them links in the USA, UK, Canada. Every time you use Talk is Jericho Amazon links, Amazon will kick back a small percentage to this show to help us cover costs. And if you want to be a Talk is Jericho Amazon warrior, take a picture of what you buy, post it on the Twitter at Talk is Jericho. I will follow you. Walk away, walk away, walk away, walk away. I will follow. Yeah, and I will uh, retweet it as well. So go to podcast1.com, click on the Killer Deals button in the top right corner of the page, then hit the Talk is Jericho button. Uh, thanks again to True Car as well, another another great sponsor. Go check that out. And thanks again to Eric Singer for being here. Huge podcast. But don't forget, it's getting closer. March 15th, 2017, when it's going to be the biggest podcast ever. Mick Foley on Talk is Jericho. The countdown is tick, tick, ticking away. 249 days until the biggest podcast ever. That's right. Thank you so much for listening. Had a great, great week. Uh, if you haven't checked out, uh, who was on last week, earlier in the week? Uh, if you haven't checked out uh, Hurricane Helms, hilarious, hilarious guest. Had a great time with him. Eric Singer was amazing. Next week on Wednesday, Paul Shear is going to be here. Very funny pop culture pundit. Uh, I met him when we were doing all the uh, uh, best week ever's on VH1. I love the 70s. I love the 80s. I love the 90s. He has got a hilarious podcast called How Did This Get Made? And it talks about bad movies. How the hell did these pieces of crap movies get made? Paul Shear, very, very funny guy. Uh, he is going to be on the show on Wednesday. More laughs, man. All about laughs. Actually, next week's uh, the next week, both shows next week are going to be nonstop laughs. I'm going to let you know what Friday's show is going to be later on this week. So, anyways, thank you so much for being here. You guys have a great week. Good luck to Brock Lesnar. Go see Kiss. Have a good time all the time. All right. See you on Wednesday. Yeah, boy. You can download new episodes of Talk is Jericho every Wednesday and Friday at podcast1.com. That's podcastone.com. 